0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment podcast.
1: Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia focused, meaning that we're going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law. But occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening.
0: And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right. Now to the studio.
1: Hello, folks, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett.
0: And I'm Tane Kell.
1: You know, Tane, sometimes when you're hearing cases, people file motions in criminal cases. Have you ever had that before? No, I don't think that's ever happened. So if they are unhappy with their confession or custodial statement, what's that What's that motion called again? It's a
0: Jackson V Deno. And see, I always got confused because I thought the V was a Roman numeral. I thought it was a Jackson V Deno, which was super confusing for me. But that's not what it is. I I finally figured that out. I was told by some lawyers one day. (laughs) Um,
1: All right, so we're going to try, we're going to do a little experiment today with our uh, new sound effects. Thanks to Turner Up Productions and Stephen Turner for making that happen. And again, if you ever have a suggestion for a podcast topic, this is one of those suggestions, but if you ever have one, Tane, tell everybody where they can contact us and give us their great idea.
0: Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. That's goodjudgepod at gmail.com.
1: That's right. So let's talk about Jackson v. Deno motions now. Also called Jackson Deno. Well, you know, that's exactly what I was about to say. There, there are people that call it Jackson Deno like it's one word. Um, it's Jackson v. Denno. It came from a U.S. Supreme Court case talking about the voluntariness of a defendant's custodial statement. So is this only applicable, Tane, when we're talking about someone being in custody?
0: Um, no. I mean, these can uh these can be statements made uh, by a defendant at any point in time. Um but uh it really has more to do with the voluntariness of the defendant's statement, and we'll get into some of the, uh, the earmarks of that in just a few minutes.
1: So, folks, this has to be a pretrial motion. Now, some people hear them during trial. Tane, do you normally hear these during a trial with a jury out of the room?
0: No, but you can imagine circumstances where something might arise. I mean, the door might be opened for a statement right in the middle of trial to be used for some reason that hasn't ever been presented pretrial. And you you need to be ready to hear these motions at any point in time.
1: What happens, Tane, if, if, if the, the defendant fails to raise a Jackson v. Deno motion. I mean, you know, there was some case law that came out that said that's a waiver. And (laughs) then there was some other case law that said, well, the best practice is for the judge to go ahead and conduct a Jackson Deno, even I just did it, a Jackson v. Deno uh, hearing, even where there has been no request for one. Do you do that?
0: Normally what happens in my courtroom, Wade, quite frankly, is that the state actually frequently asks for these Jackson-Denno hearings because the state knows what the the best practice is. They don't want there to be an issue post-trial with respect to a statement that's admitted. So frequently when they have a statement, they just go ahead and ask for one of these. But frankly, Although the case law is out there that says that it can be waived, it's one of those kind of things that you should recognize the best practices to have a hearing uh, at some point in time to make sure that the statement is admissible.
1: Folks, the evidentiary standard that's applicable in a Jackson v. Deno hearing is a preponderance of the evidence, much more like a civil case, more likely than not that the statement was made voluntarily and in such a manner as it would be appropriate to present that to a jury.
0: Right, so there's an analysis that you go through whenever one of these statements is being presented. Uh, The overriding analysis in Jackson v. Denno hearing is whether, and this is an important phrase, under the totality of the circumstances, the statement in question was, number one, freely, number two, voluntarily, and number three, uh, knowingly, Made by the defendant.
1: That's right, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be when they say intelligently or knowingly or whatever. It doesn't necessarily have to have been a great idea, right? For hit for the defendant to make that statement. Right. Very. Somebody once said, "Very few of my clients ever go to jail because they talk too little."
0: Well, and, Um, you know, there's the famous saying that uh, a lot of people have the right to remain silent, but they just don't have the ability. So (laughs) that's where these statements come in.
1: Now, the burden of proof is on the state. Regardless of who filed the motion or if the state thinks it's the best idea, it's not on the defendant to prove voluntariness or lack thereof. It's on the state to prove voluntariness.
0: Yeah, and where that comes in right off the bat is, who goes first in the motion? So, Wade, when one of these comes up, uh, which one of the parties uh, do you normally let speak about it first?
1: Well, usually we look to the state to present evidence, and, and sometimes they want to do argument, but usually we get straight to the evidence of, of who made the statement and, and under the under what circumstances the statement was made. Now, Tane, this is something we haven't discussed off air and and don't mean to catch you off guard, but... Lately, particularly when I hear Jackson v. Deno motions, I don't, I have already reviewed the videotape of the statement in chambers. Do you do that?
0: Yeah. You, uh, you and I talked about this a long time ago and and, and in context with something else, but. I think it's a great idea if the parties agree that they can go ahead and present you with the statement in advance. It saves all that time. I mean, they've already watched the statement. The defendant, presumably, has already watched the statement as well. You're the only one in the room who hasn't seen it. And, you know, frequently you can save an hour and a half or two hours sometimes of time or maybe even more than that by reviewing the statement ahead of time. But I always get the parties to agree on the record that that's okay with them.
1: Yeah, I do the same thing. So earlier you talked about the totality of the circumstances. There's also a statute that would arguably play into this. It's OCGA 24-8-824. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. So 824 basically says that before a confession is admissible, it must be made voluntarily without being induced by by the slightest hope of benefit or the remotest fear of injury. Although this provision of the evidence code was, is not a part of the FRE, the Federal Rules of Evidence, it tracks the pre-existing Georgia law, and all of that law that existed prior to the enactment of the, the Georgia Rules of Evidence remains valid and in full force and effect. So it's something that we ought to apply in these cases, right, Wade? Correct. Excellent. So let's talk about how you do it. So the process and procedure. Tane, have you ever had somebody um, basically make a complaint that the state, that they didn't read Miranda and then try to sort of shoehorn that into a Jackson v. Deno motion?
0: Yeah. And there's a there's a frequent confusion, or sometimes it may be a purposeful confusion of the issues or conflation of the issues, we might say. Um but, but there are two separate issues, and we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Miranda rights in just a few minutes. But uh, the determination that's being made in a Jackson v. Deno hearing is the voluntariness of the statement, not uh, whether it was mirandized appropriately. And there are some, some overlapping issues, and again, we'll get to those in a few minutes. Um, let me ask one question, though, Wade. Who makes the determination of voluntariness in a Jackson v. Denno circumstance?
1: Is it the court or is it the jury? All right. So in a Jackson v. Denno hearing, they are conducted without the jury hearing it, obviously. And the court must make that preliminary determination that the statement was made voluntarily. But ultimately, the jury is going to be charged on the voluntariness of the statement. And I guess they have the final word, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I mean, what we're basically doing in the Jackson v. hearing before it goes to the jury is deciding whether the jury will even see the statement at all. If we make a determination preliminarily that there was a problem with its voluntariness, um, then the jury may never hear or see that statement. Uh, but even if we determine that the statement should go forward to the jury, they then have to make a secondary determination of voluntariness and you'll charge them with respect to that.
1: So Tane, where we are, the prosecution usually calls a single witness to testify about the admissibility of a Jackson V. Dino on a Jackson V. Dino hearing. They, they seem not to want to call all of the witnesses who may have been involved now, if they can, and sometimes they can't, they have to call different witnesses because different things happen. But what if the defendant says, hey, wait a minute, another person was in the room. Do you allow them to call their own witnesses if they choose?
0: Sure. The defendant is entitled to have all witnesses testify at the Jackson v. Denno hearing who were present when a confession was given. Um, the case law is said to refuse to allow testimony from those witnesses would potentially deny the defendant the right to fully investigate all of the circumstances surrounding the confession. And, and let's think about it. I mean, our standard of proof there is the totality of the circumstances. Well, there might be something that one of those witnesses presents that's part of the totality of the circumstances that would affect your ruling on voluntariness. However, where there's testimony that the others present merely introduced themselves to the defendant or they played some similar nominal role and the defendant has the opportunity to call the witnesses but chooses not to do so, uh, there's no violation. In other words, the state doesn't have to call every single person who spoke to the defendant along the way when he made the confession in order to satisfy the requirements of Jackson v.
1: Denno. Stated another way, the law says that the trial court cannot refuse to allow the defendant to call witnesses who were present, but it does not create a, an affirmative requirement that the state must produce all witnesses who were present at the time the statement was made. That was really eloquent, Wade. Thank you. <laughs> you know, the, we've talked about the burden of proof that the state, and, and remember, there, there's a finding ultimately that you're going to be required to make The cases don't say that you have to use these exact words, but there is some case law that says this is definitely a best practice sort of thing. Do you have that in front of you, Tang?
0: Yeah. I mean, in fact, uh, the failure to do this, although it's, you know, some cases say it's not required, the failure to do so in recent cases, at least frequently, gets the case remanded for clarification so yeah the finding that the trial court needs to make is something along these lines and i'll tell you this is what's written in my trial outline for criminal cases and mine too uh, and it's the kind of language that you want to be be using in your cases here's the finding it says something along the lines of i find from a preponderance of all the evidence that the defendant was advised of each of his Miranda rights and that he understood them and that he voluntarily waived them and that he thereafter gave his statement. And here's the Jackson V. Denno part freely and voluntarily without any hope of benefit or fear of injury. And we're going to go over those two elements in just a second.
1: So Miranda warnings now, so that everybody's clear, and we've said this, these things become intertwined, but, but Jackson V. Denno really is directed toward voluntariness of the statement miranda warnings are a a, a creation i guess of from of constitutional law that certain rights need to be explained to the defendant so that that person has that on the front of their mind and that when they waive them and go forward they did so knowingly we're kind of back to the jackson v Dennis standard
0: yeah right i mean don't don't get confused by this there's an overlap between Miranda and the voluntariness and the knowing standard of Jackson v. Denno, and that's why it's important to to think about these in context with one another. So, um, so. Uh, let's think about what we're talking about with respect to, um, uh, voluntariness. Uh, for example, there's case law that says coercive police activity is a necessary predicate to the finding that a confession is not voluntary within the meaning of due process of the 14th amendment. So that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, we're, we're trying to, we're finding that the police didn't coerce them into saying that. However, Investigators' mere failure to administer Miranda warnings does not mean that the statements received have actually been coerced, but only that the courts will presume the privilege against compulsory self-incrimination has not been intelligently exercised. So that's what Wade's talking about there the analysis of whether Miranda has been given goes back to whether there was a knowing statement that the person gave it, understanding what their rights were, and waiving those rights voluntarily. So whether the statement was knowing and whether it was voluntary may go back to whether or not they knew what their rights were under Miranda. So it's a little confusing, but but just understand the two are, are intertwined. So Just because the Miranda presumption does not necessarily constitute a finding that the statement was coerced, statements obtained in violation of procedural requirements of Miranda may be found otherwise voluntary under the due process standards.
1: So that's why the conclusory statement that Tane read a while ago, the, the one that the appellate courts have said are best practices, really sort of includes both, that the Miranda warnings were given. And that the statement was made in a voluntary manner without the hope of benefit or fear of injury. So if the if that's not true, obviously, you can't if if no Miranda warnings were given, you can't find they were given. But at the same time, understand that just because a statement was made in violation of Miranda does not make it involuntary. And that might become relevant if the defendant takes the stand. And the prosecution seeks to impeach him with his prior statement. Well, you can never use a coerced statement, but you might be able to make a use a contrary statement that was made without the benefit of Miranda warnings. So, Miranda warnings. Let's let's turn to Miranda warnings for a minute.
0: Yeah, and let me and let me let me just make one distinction so that'll hopefully make this easier to understand. Miranda warnings have to be given when the defendant is in custody and we're going to break that down for you in just a second so so for example i'm going to give you an extreme example if a police officer walks up knocks on somebody's door the the defendant opens the door and the police officer puts a gun to the guy's head and says you murdered john smith didn't you and the defendant says yes that defendant's confession is clearly coerced but he's not in custody at that point necessarily, so Miranda's not ne- not really necessary at that point. So it's not a voluntary statement, but it's not one that necessarily implicates Miranda. Anyway, Wade, go ahead. And let's talk about uh, let's talk about Miranda.
1: You kind of messed up like every movie plot line of every cop TV or movie that's ever been made. Sorry to
0: bust up uh, SUV uh, special victims unit or whatever those were for you. What's the one that Ice-T's on? That's such a great show.
1: That's SVU. Okay. All nice. right. So Miranda warnings are required if a defendant is in custody. I think we all get it. If you are in handcuffs, leg irons, you actually have physical restraints on, but that isn't the only circumstance under which you might be found to be in custody, right, Tane?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the standards, in addition to being, quote, unquote, formally arrested or in custody, is any circumstance where the defendant's freedom of movement has been restrained to the degree associated with a formal arrest.
1: How many times have you been in one of these where the question is asked, was the defendant under arrest? No, he was detained. (laughs) <laughs> and you're watching the video and this person's leg is chained to the table and you're going, okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that's akin to being formally arrested, whether was, you use those words or not.
0: If he was Harry Houdini, he was free to go. <laughs> For those so of you who are too young to know who that is, let's say uh, David Blaine. Anyway, go ahead.
1: I think there are a lot of people still too young to know that. But anyway, that's probably true. so when you're deciding whether someone is in custody or not, you ask yourself a few questions. Would a reasonable person in the suspect situation perceive that he was no longer at liberty to terminate the interview and leave and go to the house? Now, you have to use an objective standard, a reasonable person standard, just like we learned in, in, in law school when we were talking about torts and things like that. you can't what my, defi- what
0: my torts professor used to call the reasonable man <laughs> is the reasonable man. I so burned into my memory.
1: So if you let it be subjective, the defendant will always say, well, presumably always say whatever is in their benefit. Uh, I, I wasn't free to leave. I didn't feel like I could leave. Whereas you look at things like was the door locked? Was the person in handcuffs? Were they in any sort of shackles? Were they told? They, they couldn't leave. You look at the, again, Tane, that phrase, totality of the circumstances to determine whether that person was in custody to start with, correct? That's right. And, you know, I
0: think the case law regarding some of these issues that we're talking about here is probably why, for the most part, under modern-day circumstances, most statements by defendants are recorded by video so that we we have the ability to observe the totality of the circumstances under which the uh, statement was being given. And, and I would just encourage you, when you're talking about a defendant's statement in your order or ruling or whatever you're doing, to make sure and include that you watched a video, if that's what you watched, not that you just listened to the defendant's statement, because it makes a difference.
1: Absolutely. So... similarly, you have to use a reasonable person standard from the suspect standpoint. You also have to have a reasonable person or or an objective standpoint when you look at what the officer said and did. If the officer merely – even if the officer thought this person probably committed the crime, even if they were truly a, quote, unquote, suspect, that does not necessarily mean that person was in custody. And so Miranda warnings may not have been required when that person no longer became free to leave that is where at that point somebody needs to stop and read some miranda warnings
0: now wait if if the statement took place at the police station then then absolutely mirandas are required right
1: no why the, not? you're not necessarily in custody merely because you're at the police statement police station excuse me you might be a witness. You might be a victim. There be, might be any number of reasons you're at a police station. So, again, it has to do with objectively whether that defendant was free to leave. Right. So let's talk about what happens when the officer says, hey, man, just between me and you are off the record. Because they usually don't point out where the camera is hidden and is is painted to look like a clock or looks like the thermostat or whatever, they normally say, Hey man, just between me and you, you can tell me.
0: And again, this is one of those circumstances where you've got the right to remain silent, but just not the ability where the officer goes, Hey, Hey man. Hey, you know, just between you and me, like, you know, just us guys, you you, you killed that guy, right? (laughs) Does that not, why do bells and whistles not go off? I I just don't, I just don't understand that. But, just in case there are people out there who would fall for that one. The case law says, nah, that statement can't be used. That's, uh, that, that's inappropriate for the officer to say, this is off the record, or this is confidential, or this is just between you and me. How about telling me this?
1: Um, and so that statement can't be used, right, Wade? That's correct. Now I will say you have this, this Carswell case and, and I'm not sure which of my buttons this is. <laughs> that was
0: the one. That's, that's probably, the Carswell. Not, that's probably that's, not the one I was looking for. Reading but that's law the Carswell button. during a podcast is not awesome.
1: Wait, yep, that, that's the one. Do
0: that again. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome.
1: So, Carswell, the defendant made three custodial statements. In the first, the defendant indicated that his statement was off the record. He told the officers, hey, this is off the record, like he was talking to a reporter. Before the second interview, the defendant was advised of his Miranda warnings before he spoke to the officers. The defendant was re-advised of his Miranda warnings before the third statement he made. Additionally, the defendant initiated that second and third interview they they occur. Well, the, the third interview occurred several days after the second interview and Supreme Court of Georgia held that the rereadings of the Miranda warnings were central to their finding that those second and third interviews could be introduced. Now, so if the defendant says this is off the record, that also in, impacts your decision. But the rereading of Miranda warnings, especially when you have some time separating the first, second, third, fourth, fifth interviews, is going to probably be important to the trial court's determination of voluntariness and whether those statements are admissible.
0: Yeah, and just, just so you know, if the defendant says, hey, this is off the record, there's actually an affirmative duty of the law enforcement officers to disabuse him of the idea that he can make statements to them that are off the record.
1: So Tane, we've talked about hope of benefit and fear of injury. Let's start with let's start with hope of benefit. Yeah. If if the officer says, Hey man, you make this statement and I'll get you a juicy cheeseburger, is that a hope of benefit?
0: Well, it's a hope of something good coming down the pike, but hope of benefit normally relates to something with respect to the charges that would or would not be proffered against the defendant, or, or more importantly, the punishment that the defendant might receive with respect to those charges.
1: So where the officer says to the defendant, hey, man, you talk to me and I'm going to be able to tell the judge that you cooperated, you're going to look better in front of the jury. Is that a hope of benefit? It's not.
0: There's case law out there, which is cited in. And by the way, there's a memo on this, on all of this, on our website at uh, goodjudgepod.com. Uh, but no, that has been ruled to be a, um, a statement of essentially a statement of fact, but not a hope of benefit. That's not the same as saying, hey, uh, if you tell me what I need to know here, I'm going to see to it that uh, you, you get charged only with a misdemeanor or that uh, that you never do a day of time in the state penitentiary or something along those lines.
1: Same with immunity. If there is some indication that the officer is saying, hey, look, regardless of what you tell me, I'm not going to charge you, that would that would also be a hope of benefit. What about So, uh, the, again, that goes kind of back to the outcome of the criminal proceeding, not necessarily the um, coercion involved in the initial obtaining of a, of a statement.
0: Yeah, what if the officer makes a declaration, uh, something to the effect of, hey, look, nobody in the public is ever going to have access to these proceedings. What about that,
1: Wade? You see, that? that's one of those things that it, that's not a hope of benefit because that really doesn't go to what ultimately is going to be the outcome of the criminal proceeding. The same is sort of when the officer says that the hope, for example, if you don't make this statement, I'm going to have to charge your mama and them. You know, that that is not a hope of benefit. That may be a fact. That may be, in fact, true, but that's not a hope of benefit. What about a promise to, hey, man, you make this statement, I'll make sure we either get you a bond or reduce your bond. Is that a hope of benefit?
0: You know, uh, surprisingly, at least to me, that's actually not a hope of benefit because, again, it doesn't go to the ultimate charge the defendant might receive and the and the penalty that he might receive under that charge.
1: So, folks, this also, you need to focus here, if you're talking about hope of benefit, on the actions or words of the officer. The fact that a defendant may have had a subjective hope that making this statement would help his or her situation that has no impact whatsoever on hope of benefit. The, the problem becomes when the officer, I guess, plants or, or suggests that there would be some benefit coming, not that the defendant had a subjective hope that a benefit would be coming.
0: That's right. Well, next, Wade, let's go to the fear of injury. We mentioned that a few minutes ago. Um what what you usually hear is uh, something to akin to where the defendant's statement is induced by the remotest fear of injury. That's a phrase that's used in a lot of the cases. Then that statement would be inadmissible. And, you know, the obvious ones are, hey, if you don't tell us what you know, I'm going to smash your head into this table or, you know, I'm going to walk out of the room and let this officer work you over, uh, for 15 minutes, you know, off the record or, uh, you know, something like that, or, or, or we're going to, you know, I'm going to burn your ha- head with this cigarette. I mean, those are all, you know, threats of torture, threats of physical injury, but there are some other ones that are a little bit more subtle, right? Wade?
1: Yeah. And, and you, if you ever have a case where a law enforcement officer is a defendant, fear of injury relating to loss of a job needs to be one of those things that you actually look at because that would really only apply if the investigator or whoever is also now the defendant. I guess former law enforcement officer probably is now the defendant. You need to look at some of this case law because they say that statements relative to losing your job really can impact the fear of injury concept. But otherwise the fact that, Hey man, if you don't make this statement, I'm not going to have any choice but to lock you up and you're probably going to lose your job. That's not a fear of injury that is anticipated by this case law. Yeah.
0: I think one of the interesting, you know, twists on all of this is that uh, in, in, talking to defendants about what is in their best interests or other things that officers frequently do when they're interrogating uh, witnesses, merely encouraging them or admonishing them to tell the truth. Um, is not going to invalidate a confession. In other words, saying you know you really need to get this off your chest. You really need to come clean. It's really going to be best for you if you if you tell the truth here. And the truth is always going to be better. And all of those kinds of admonitions um, have been found uh, not to invalidate a, a statement of a defense. Hold on, this is your favorite producer slash editor Stephen here. Man, these guys are long-winded. We're going to break it up into two equally enthralling sessions. Court has adjourned. I've always wanted to say that. Okay, I'm going to run the outro now.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College
0: of Law, and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger.
1: Thanks to Mr. Steven Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can.
0: But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project.
1: The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter.
0: These are barely the opinions of Wade Paget and Tane Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else.
1: You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com,
0: or send us an email at goodjudgepod@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
1: So Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say?
0: Most people would say something like, we'll do much better next time, but let's be honest, this is probably as good as it's going to get.